Hello, everyone, and welcome to Conversations on Sex, Addiction, and Relationships. So glad that you're here joining us. I've got my my good friends, Dan Drake and Wendy Conquest joining me today. Jeannie uh, Vitoni isn't able to, to make it today, but it's just the three of us. And uh, in just a little bit, uh, Diane Schrock is going to be joining us to talk about Brene Brown and all the good stuff she does, um, like embracing uh, imperfections in Dan, you were teasing me about when we edit this, aren't we really just hiding our imperfections so that other people can't see them? And maybe we should just put the complete unedited version out there so people see us. Although I think that might be a bit problematic. We are not super polished in between. <laughs> but is that okay? I guess that's the big question. Yeah. I, I love that. Is it okay to, is it okay to be imperfect? I, I, I will say as a therapist, that some of the, the 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 best moments in therapy are when, you know, I, I have one of those imperfect moments and I'm not exactly clued in the way that I would like to be. And yet, you know, that humanity comes through in the relationship and the connection, the interaction and clients, uh, you know, get to learn from my mistakes as well as, you know, their own own work. Yeah. I still remember my first exposure to the gifts of imperfection. I was about to present at some conference and I was feeling really insecure about speaking. And my colleague was, uh, colleague was said, hey, have you read this book, Gifts of Imperfection? And I think that the whole concept was so freeing for me that we don't have to be, you know, me hiding from shame or insecurities or inadequacies or my own vulnerabilities and trying to portray myself a certain way. I think there's something about embracing our full selves. And I don't know, it's been, it's been transformational for me just, just being okay, who I am, where I am. Yeah. And, and embracing that. I remember when I, I, I'm pretty sure you guys were at the, the conference in Arizona where we heard Brene talk and she, and she talked about how the night before she was having a bit of a panic attack about I'm talking to all these therapists. And so I need to beef up all the statistics. And, you know, her husband talked her off the ledge and said, just be yourself and you're going to be fine. Yep. I love one of the pieces with Brene Brown is I'm enough. Mm -hmm. um, and I, I, I'm really excited about this conversation and, and having Diane join us today because um, I'm sensing that, uh, and this is, you know, to put the date out there, this is January in 2022. And I'm feeling just a lot of uh, pressure and, um, almost like a pressure to perform, a pressure to know what's going to happen, a pressure to uh, almost uh, know the next step. So uh, we're basically uh, in the coming up, at least in, in Boulder, Colorado, um, on the second anniversary of when we got shut down with COVID mm -hmm. um, as two years ago. So, um, and here we are two years later, and uh, a lot, a lot of people thought that we would be in a much different place than we are right now. And so I've been experiencing with clients, uh, well, I've, I've have clients coming back uh, who I saw a decade ago and the anxiety is up, the um, uncertainty is up. And so it's a part of the societal piece that I, I'm curious to talk to Diane about too, is like how, when, you know, we have these external circumstances, how do we keep that, that distinction? How do we stay with, you know, no matter what, um, I'm enough. I'm, I'm good enough. I'm okay. Well, let's explore that question and many more and bring Diane on. Diane Schrock 
is a, a therapist of many, many years. She ha has trained with uh, Brene Brown, was a consultant for Brene's uh, organization for uh, many, many years and uh, does great stuff and is a good personal friend of mine. I've known her for uh, over 25 years. So Diane, you wanna, wanna come on and join us? Absolutely. Hello. Welcome, Diane. Hi, Thank Diane. You. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yay. This is good. It is so good to see you. And I'm, I'm, I'm so thrilled to be talking about Brene Brown and all of her work. Um, would you start us off? Um, I, I want to go a little bit in a little different direction to start with than the, okay. the shame and vulnerability piece. And that is Brene has embraced and sort of um, promoted this idea of imperfection and being the man in the arena. And you do a lot of work around challenge and daring yourself to take steps and 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 tolerate imperfection, even because it's going to take you in a in a direction that is helpful for you. Would you talk a little bit about sort of that idea of challenging yourself or daring yourself and how you see that being helpful to you and to others? Yeah. You know, one of the things I've really latched onto in the last actually the last year, but certainly probably in the last 10 years, um, is this idea of why am I here? What's my purpose? And a lot of people are like, ah, I don't know, purpose, whatever. But like, if you don't know where you want to go and what you want to do with this life, then, you know, you're going to wander a bit. And, you know, this idea of being imperfect it's not an idea, actually, it's a reality <laughs> that we're perfectly imperfect, you mm -hmm. know, and imperfections are actually the things that help us connect uh, in this world. We don't connect around our quote unquote perfections. We, you know, we connect around how messy life is and like how sometimes, I mean, it's, it isn't it messy, it's messy to be human. Like I, when I figured that out, it made life a lot easier for me. And it's, it, it really kind of dovetails into that, like the, the gifts of imperfection and realizing that that's who we are as human beings. We're, we're born that, messy. Yeah. You, well, you say that so clearly and how freeing to, to, like you said, to be able to, to own, acknowledge that. And cause yeah. I've have the gift of getting to hear, you know, people share their story being, take the risk to be vulnerable with me in session. Yeah. But um, so I get to hear that I, all of us have insecurities and imperfections, but I don't know, a lot of our clients have this illusion that what they're going to be loved by is all the, you know, the good or the shiny or the kind of successes or thing, you know, and I think I love what you said. You said it so like succinctly, but so beautifully. And yet I, I think so much, so many of our clients kind of live the opposite of that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's why I start with purpose. You know, a lot of times I actually start sessions with, you know, well, like all of us, you know, what, what brought you here today? What's up? And they tell me a story and stories are big, as you know, like, what's the story? And, um, and I'm like, okay, so that's what brought you here. But what do you want? Like, what do you want out of life? What's your purpose? And they look at me like I just asked them, you know, to recite something in Greek, you know, like, I, I, I don't know. So, so that's one of the first things that I do is let's look at where do you want to go? 
What's your purpose? And I actually, I'm super obnoxious and Tim, Tim will verify that. Um, is that I will every session, like I'll sneak it in somewhere and like, hey, so what's your purpose? And it's great because you can measure like, where am I going? And if that's not gonna lead me towards or, or closer to my purpose, then I have a guidepost to say, hey, maybe I'm off here. Maybe I need to look at that. So, and I normalize imperfections. I normalize pain. I normalize the human experience is messy because it just is. And I think, uh, you know, I know actually that people get stuck in this, well, if I could just be perfect enough, then I would be enough, as Wendy was saying uh, before this idea of I am enough. You are, period. That's it. You're lovable and valuable, period. That's it. Which definitely, Tim, should we tell the story or not? Do we have time? I, I, Wait, I, let me just, I have a question. I have know, a question. Okay. I, I, I want to hear the story. Cliffhanger, cliffhanger. Cliffhanger. With the purpose piece. Um, so yeah. a lot of people will say, uh, they'll do like a default, like, oh, well, my purpose is I just need to be a good mom. You know, that's my purpose in life. And so how do you distinguish when they are really getting to, Mm, I, to what, the, what their real soul, I, I guess I want to say, what their real soul wants to accomplish versus... Yeah, yeah, world. yeah. So if someone said to me, I, I, my purpose is to be a good mom, I'm like, awesome. Tell me more about being a good mom. Uh, and then we start uncovering what's important to them. Okay. And they start... Uh, in, we, and so, and so then we pick out, well, I just make a list of words. They're talking about being a good mom. What, well, loving, loving. Ah, oh, that's good. Good moms are loving, right? What else? Well, they keep their kids safe, safety. Yeah. And so we just find these words and then I'm like, okay, so let's weave that into a statement that if we got on the elevator together, it's just you and me, this would be kind of weird, but I might do this. And I'd say, hey, what's the purpose of your life? And I'd want you to, well, I'm so glad you asked because my therapist taught me <laughs> to know, to memorize the purpose of my life is so that, okay? So this is what I'm doing so that, and we just work with it. So nothing oh. that they say is wrong. It's all useful. All of it's useful to put that together um, so on paper. That, yeah. That's just brilliant. I mean, I, I, I get chills when you... Mm frame it that way because it takes off all the uh minutiae of yeah um of of what maybe what they've made up or what they've inherited is who they yeah. should be or what they should be and it gets right. down to the absolute innate qualities which is real yeah yeah well one of the things we look at too and we will get to that story we won't leave you hanging, Dan. Well, I have not, I have another thought too that, that I have to follow <laughs> up with, but that, go ahead. Okay, one other thing, and we might, you know, dabble in in this uh, if we have time. Is this idea of what are the stories that we're telling ourselves? Mm -hmm. Okay, and a lot of times people will start talking, and and you know, I've done this before as a human, messy human being, and a messy therapist. Sometimes it's like well, wait a minute, and kind of course correcting them in their story rather than hearing the story and then asking, getting really curious. I like, I wonder when you first learned that. 
whose story is that? And then they start realizing that they're owning a story that they didn't even write. And their whole life has been, and I'm sure this, this comes up around addiction work too, is like they're trying, they're trying so hard to be something that someone told them that they have to be. And they're in so much pain that they're like, just give me something that feels good, something to distract me, something that I can use that's right there quick, instantaneous, that gives me that moment of happiness, that moment of distraction, right? Okay, so anyway. When, when, you, yeah. when you talk about that, it just reminds me, because yeah. I, hear, I hear the trauma work that I do, and I granted use a very wide net when it comes to trauma, and yeah. you know anything that's less than nurturing is often sort of emotionally wounding or traumatic. Yeah. But you know, with, with our with our addicts that we work with, and I think some of our partners too, th there's often that deep wound of this is the story that I was that in that I internalized. Whether it yeah. was a conscious choice or not, this is the story that I've internalized. This is all the the reasons that I feel less than. This is the persona that I need right. to create to show the world, so that um, so that people will be will 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 will, will, will see me and I'll feel comfortable and okay. And so much of the, the, when we get to the trauma work aspect, that deep emotional healing aspect of addiction work, so much of it is, um, I wouldn't have used this terminology before, but so much of it is helping them to rewrite those stories. You know, yeah. what's reality and what's, what, what, what's the, 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 the deep stuff in your head. And, you know, it would be nice if it was as easy as just saying, well, that is not true. So I'm not going to believe it anymore. But, you know, it's a little bit more complex than that. But getting in there and, you know, doing that work to help them rewrite those stories so that they don't anchor them and hold them back anymore. Yeah. Well, you know, there's also like they, they could say, oh, yeah, is that's not true. So I'm not going to believe it anymore. You know, I'm like, uh, OK, no, just call BS on that, because that isn't the way our brains work. You know, you've talked a lot about this in your work, Tim. But oh, yeah. um, so our our brains say, our logical brains say, or our thinking brains say that it has to be 100% true to be true. And that isn't true, <laughs> right? It could be partially true and be true. It could be 1%. And then we ask ourselves, okay, like, so here's the story or not true, true or not true. So here's a story. Is that true? Well, no, it's not true. Well, maybe it, but you know, maybe it is, and they're confused, you can say, well, okay, maybe it's not true 10%. So what would it look like if it were not true 11% or 15%? And they start working into the changing the story incrementally, that they don't, that it, they can start the change without fully believing it and under, you know, like where, they don't even have to know that much about it. They just have to know what's the story and then is it true or not true and well, work on that, work towards. So I'm, yeah. I'm all confused, sorry, so I'm confused. Okay. So you're talking about the, their own internal story. Yeah, just what's a, what's a story that you have, that, or any of you, that you have that you realized, oh, that was there before I even knew that stories existed. You were taught. Oh, you, mean, you mean in, in inherited from mom or dad? Yeah, someone oh, or culture or yeah. I know this one. I've got this because this is yeah. This goes yeah. back. This this is our history all over again, Diane. 
So is this the story that we've all been waiting for? No, nope, this is a different story, okay. but it's a good one. Oh my gosh, we have so many stories, you guys. I mean, it's <laughs> lots of stories. When you and I were doing the preparation for that that CEU course we did together, and we yes. were we were at your house and sitting in your living room, and we were going right. through all these meditations. And as we're sitting there doing that meditation, one of the meditations talked about sort of seeing the landscape of your life. And as I was sitting there, and I was early in my own recovery at the time, I had this realization that on that there was myself, and it was sort of like that persona that I had created to show the world. And then there was the wounded part of me that was a little bit separate. And mm. And the, what I knew about in that moment was that for my own healing, I needed to bring that wounded part in, which didn't scare me. But what did terrify me was by doing that, I knew I had to let go of the persona I'd created. And right. I didn't realize until that moment that my story was, if people really know who I am, I'm not going to be loved and accepted. And yeah. you know, so that was that story. And a lot of my own personal healing work has been around healing that and changing that narrative and learning that if I'm um, transparent, if I'm, uh, if I'm imperfect, if, if I'm just myself, that people still love me, even though I'm not sort of maybe as polished as that persona I wanted to create appeared to be. Yeah. Yeah. What was, and I know that this isn't an interview of you, but and what, so it was that moment, but then what was the next step you took? The, the next step, I don't know what the next step was, but the next meaningful step in that work was going yeah. to, um, going and starting to do my trauma work. And I went to the meadows and did the work with Pia Melody. And then I actually trained with her yeah. and she yeah. talked so much about that. You're lovable and valuable, that precious, precious child inside yeah. the internal child work and, and developing sort of a, a part of myself that had always been there, but hadn't been very strong, which, you know, yeah. get in, in, the, in that work, they re, we refer to it as a functional adult. Other people talk about it as your healthy adult, but the parenting, yeah. part, developing that part of myself and being able to go in and nurture that wounded part. And so yeah. my, my functional adult started writing the story and creating and editing and changing it and yeah. taking that responsibility away from the child that carried yeah. the wounds from my, uh, from my childhood, you know, wounds, some of them, most of them were unintended, but I had internalized and taken them on sure. all the same. Yeah. Yeah. It's almost as simple as saying I hurt Yeah. and having someone there to say I'm here. For those of you joining us now, thank you so much for joining us. We're talking with Diane Schrock and we're talking imperfection and shame and vulnerability and all kinds of good stuff. Here is a, is a truth that I have about myself, that I am lovable and valuable. So that's a truth, but that's not always 100% true for me. So when I work with people, when I say, hey, you're lovable and valuable, they usually get a look on their face like, oh, you know, where they think of that Saturday Night Live skit or something, you know. Um, so I so, said, well, well, is any of that true? Are you lovable and can you can you say that you're lovable and valuable and believe it like five percent? Well, yeah, I can believe it five percent. Great, okay. And so that's where we start. And then 
we nurture that, and this will be the story that we tell, we nurture that I'm lovable and valuable by repeating that saying so that it becomes familiar and natural to who we are and it becomes more a part of our of our story, our healthy story. Okay, Tim, go ahead. So Diane and I are running this group and she's fairly new and I don't know her that well. And I've been running groups with kids and you know, setting boundaries and talking about it. And Diane comes in at the end of this group, she looks at them and says, okay, here's your homework this week. This is the first time I've first time I've helped co facilitate this group with boys, little boys. Yeah. And I think it's and I think it's the very first group we've done together. So it's the first time I'm meeting Diane. Yeah. And at the end of so, this group, yeah. Diane looks at him and says, Your homework is every door you walk through this week, I want you to say to yourself, I'm lovable and valuable. And I'm in this place of, oh my God, what <laughs> sort of like, you know, crunchy granola, touchy feely therapist have I gotten myself right. connected right. to here? And so the guys go off and they come back and, and the next week they're like, well, you know, I did that. And, and suddenly they're talking about how it's starting to feel true. And I think it's so funny because I, I was just, my initial re reaction was, oh my God, what are we doing? But that's a homework I still give to clients because what it creates, it creates, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's an, it's not a mantra. It's, um, it's, a, it's a daily affirmation. 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 It's an affirmation. And the point of affirmations is not, I believe it. The point of affirmations is I might believe it down the, down the road a bit. And I'm saying it to myself again and again and again. And so when I give it to clients now, you know, after the first week, they usually come in and they say, well, that was stupid. And I'm like, yeah, do it again for the next week. And they come in the next week and they're like, well, yeah, that was a little bit better. I'm like, great, keep going. And by the third week, they're usually like, you know what, that's actually feeling pretty good. And I'm feeling much better about it. But uh, I appreciate that story and I appreciate that homework, not only because I find it effective, but because it 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 is so much more helpful than my initial reaction thought it was going to be. Yeah, and imagine the story that you had in your head about, <laughs> Dan's like, yeah, mm -hmm. about uh, oh, being a lovable and valuable little boy. So I have to tell you, there are few things sweeter in life than having a little 10-year-old boy say, look at me, look at me, I'm walking through the door, I'm lovable and valuable. It was, it, it was so beautiful. And if that, and maybe that was the first time they ever said that or heard or thought that, that maybe I am, maybe I am enough just the way I am. And you make me think, I, I love that so much. And especially with little boys, because I, I think with the socialization of boys who become men, I mean, I have countless stories, countless men I've worked with that, and, and maybe this is a generational thing too. And also I think we prepare our kids for the, the world that we grew up in, not necessarily mm -hmm. the world they're in. And I, yeah. I have how many, how many men I've worked with whose fathers had really rough lives themselves and who want to toughen up their kids so that their kid, their, their little son, their little boy doesn't have to experience the same kind of pain and wounds that they, they went through. So they, you know, quote, toughen them up and maybe get violent or they make them, you know, beat up the, the kid down the street to, to kind of prove how tough they are instead of coming to cry at home. I just, I just 
that breaks my heart so much because that little boy doesn't go away. He just goes, he just gets exiled. He's gone. And, uh, you know, that, that it becomes something, but I, I just, I love that idea of integrating this lovability because I think for some of the men I work with, they, they feel like that's just soft. That's weak. That's not masculine. That's, you know, all the, whatever, whatever kind of derogatory terms they do right. to kind of put it down. So I, and it just makes me think with all the men I've worked with, but I'm curious in your work then is, have you noticed gender difference with, with being able to kind of embrace some of this value, purpose, lovability kind of concepts? Absolutely. 100%. I mean, men, as you know, men, uh, you're not even given permission to feel, I mean, maybe to feel angry, you know? Okay. Um, but you know, they don't even know what it's good or bad. So men will come into my office and I'll say, so how are you feeling? And it's either good or bad. It's not like, well, I'm sad or I, you know, kind of angry about no, nah, no, nah, nothing. And I'm like, well, good and bad are actually judgments. So we learn to be pretty judgmental about ourselves in life, but we don't really learn about feelings. What do we feel? And so one of the, one of the first things I do with men, I give them a feeling chart or now I have them go online and they get a feeling chart and we talk about feelings and being able to identify them. And one of the best ways for, for men to identify and women too, but women are sorry guys, but we're just kind of better at it because we're given permission. Um, That's not news culture. To, to, to us yeah. or probably anybody. <laughs> no, no, no surprise there. You know, it's like, um, but I, when I talk to men about feelings, I'm like, where do you feel that in your body? Because men feel things, they can recognize their feelings better if they can connect it with, with uh, their body. And so, yeah, that's usually where I start. When you get angry, what happens? Well, my jaw gets tight, you know, my fists, I make fists. I get my, my vision narrows, you know? Interestingly enough, all the stuff that happens when we're in fear and trauma, right? The same things. So I can help them recognize what the feeling is by connecting with how, what's going on in their body. Was that helpful? Did that yeah, happen? no, absolutely. I think yeah. it's incredibly, I, I well, oh, go ahead, Wendy. Well, I did want to say that um, women, I think more and more women are being socialized not to feel their feelings as well. That's, I think the, the, the amount of eating disorders happening and cutting oh behaviors all those pieces. Um, and I, I remember going into my second therapist um, office um, when I was 28 and she'd say, uh, so Wendy, you know, what, what are you feeling? And I tell her what I thought and she'd say, no, 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 yeah. no, no. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so she had to re I, at 28, I had to relearn, you know, the four ma major categories of feelings because yeah. um, I had just shut it all down. Yeah. Right. And it's so curious because when we're born, you know, children are all, they're just feeling, they don't do any thinking. They're learning things, but they're not doing much thinking. They're just feeling right. And then somewhere along the line, we are told, taught, given a story and a plan about how we're going to be. And this is what you need to do to be loved. 
Okay. And so that's what a lot of us try to do is like follow the rule book and it starts shutting down parts of who we are. And what I love about Bernie's work is she is all about be you, you know, be who you are, bring it all with all your gifts of imperfection, bring it right. right? By the way, this book was, I, it, it will forever probably be my favorite book that she's ever written, The Gifts of Imperfection. It's just a great, my um, dog actually chewed on it. So it's actually <laughs> chewed up on this edge here. And when you talk about learning to feel, it feels so important to me uh, in the 12 step oh, work, you know, so frequently we're talking about in 12 step lingo, they talk about it's a two foot drop. I'm moving out of my head, which is all the stuff yeah. of this is who I think I'm supposed to be. This is what I think I'm supposed to feel. This is what I'm thinking and um, dropping into your emotions and your body. And Dan and I actually just last weekend at, uh, at a conference, we're talking about empathy. And I love Brene's work and little video that she's put out about empathy. Um, but we were talking about how when we're working with addicts, oftentimes empathy is gonna be a long game. And we have to start with sympathy or not sympathy, but sensitivity because oh. addicts have been in their heads so much that their ability to uh, emotionally imagine what somebody else might be feeling as they're going through something is very, very limited. And so if they don't have that ability to sort of like emotionally imagine what it must be like, they can't really communicate that emotional understanding. And so they're kind of limited to the first two, which is this is their experience and I'm not going to judge it. And what could I do that would be nice to them when they're going through that? Right. Because they well, haven't would... got that emotional um, intelligence developed because they haven't been sitting in their emotions yet. And so hopefully we get there right. later on, but it's usually not a starting point. I, I don't know. Does, do you run into that with, with people you work with or is it just us addict therapist? Oh no. So it's, it's just everywhere. It's everywhere. But empathy is interesting. And Brene is really, and one of the things I appreciate about her work is her work is imperfect. So she will say something and then her, her research will actually show that that's not valid. And she will correct that, which is, which is helps me because what we're saying right now, if we watch this 10 years from now, we might be like, I can't even believe I said that or thought that because things do change and evolve. But what the empathy thing is, empathy is really, a, I think the first place to start is with ourselves. So mm -hmm. if you can learn to connect with your feelings, the feelings you're having about why you ended up so deeply entrenched in an addiction, that can be very, very helpful to connect with those feelings and to really be tender with yourself around that and not go into judgment. So many people think that if we, if we get real judgy about it, that that's going to help. Like if we really shame, get deep in the shame, man, just feel real bad about it, that that's somehow going to move us into this place of, okay, I'm good. I'm cured. You know, no, it's the opposite. Shame keeps you stuck in the addiction. It's like, it's like glue that keeps you there because what is the hardest thing that we have to deal with in life is pain. Okay. And, and I'll tell you there, I don't know anything more painful than shame. Oh my gosh. It's, it's the most 
emotionally the most painful feeling of them all. And we will just reach for whatever we can to not feel it. Okay. So, so hard. I, yeah. So I have a, I have a question. So um, this can be with um, addicts and betrayed partners. It can also be with really any couple um, when um, someone in the couple does something wrong um, the other person wants uh, them to be reminded of it, right? Mm -hmm. I'm going to mm -hmm. remind you that you did these things and I don't right. want you to forget. And, and so, um, and so when I hear you say, uh, and then, and then what will happen is um, the other person will say, I need to have good self-esteem. I'm not going to let you talk to me this way anymore. So I can't go into shame and um, I'm not going to let you do that. And then uh, we get stuck like as, right. you know, so we get stuck in this paradigm. So with your, with, with your, I'm going to say sort of template or, or um, understanding how, how do you, how do you get couples out of this? What, how do we get them out? Well, again, you know, when you're judging someone, what do they do? If, if someone feels judged, what, what's the re what do they do? No, they get defensive. They, defensive. Push. they, they yeah. guard up. So it's like, right. uh, gone, they're gone. So they're, they're not safe now. Okay. So they're not going to hear or respond in any kind of way that's going to be effective. So you're judging me. So, so what I would say is what, when someone's using judgment as a tool, and it is a tool, what do they hope to get out of using that tool? Okay. And has it ever worked for them? Because I, if it has, if it's not working, I would suggest you put it down and we can kind of look and discover maybe a more effective tool to use to get you what you want. Most people want connection. Most people want to feel closer. They also, and this is where vulnerability, and we haven't even used that word, but vulnerability is really sitting in the uncertainty and the risk and the emotional exposure that life serves up, right? What could be more uncomfortable than that? Okay? I'm, kinda, I'm curious about yeah. that too, because I 100% I agree. I think that's so beautiful. And, and so critical. And, and yet we also, some of our couples, many of our couples, you know, with, with sex addiction uh, in particular, there's been active deception, which often involves sure. gaslighting, emotional sure. abuse, you know, psychological manipulation, those kinds of things. So there's been active harm done or continuing, you know, in the past yeah. or in the present. So yeah. I'm all for vulnerability. How do you, how do we add safety to vulnerability for especially on the, on the behalf of the betrayed partner for, for our clients? Well, the first thing, it's, it's not going to feel safe. That doesn't mean it's not, but it's not going to feel safe, right? Uncertainty doesn't feel safe. Risk doesn't feel safe. Emotional exposure doesn't feel safe. So we're, it's almost counterintuitive, right? Like that part of my brain that says, whoa, whoa, this is danger, danger, danger is going to tell me to run away or to fight or to freeze or to fake it or whatever the F I'm doing, you know, whichever F I pick. So to override that, and this is where empathy comes in to override that and to go back to what you were saying, Wendy, is if she's not or he's not getting what they want 
from using judgment, then I would get really curious about, I wonder what would work. And I will tell you that empathy works, but it takes a lot of courage to sit in that, okay? And there is no courage ever without vulnerability, ever. Okay, and that's why addiction is really an indication that someone is so scared and so weak and so afraid and of, of vulnerability. And there's no courage. They, they are not being courageous at all in that. They want to be, but they're, in so, they're so afraid of being who they really are. Like Tim told that, that really wonderful story about that moment of realizing that this this sort of some facade that I have that it doesn't really work. It's not really who I am. So to be vulnerable enough to rewrite that story, well, that took a huge amount of courage. And I, I, I think you would agree that when people take that step into courage and vulnerability, that their lives change dramatically. And the outcome is that they are enough and they are lovable and valuable and they get to live on purpose in their life. And it's the most beautiful thing. It's not, it's not, um, there's a term called brutal. So it's brutal and beautiful at the same time, because remember I said that being human is messy and it is, but you have the tools and the framework to live on purpose now. You will never have that as an, an in addiction, active addiction. So but really good stuff. And we didn't get into much of Brene's um, work. I did want to let you know, she has um, a new book out, Atlas of the Heart. Oh. And she's really in this book, it's a lot of, if you know Brene, like I know Brene, it's a lot of the stuff that she talks about and she's always talked about. What I really love about it is she's weaving in this idea that the way that we get to the heart is through language. The words that we use are very important. And so I'm hoping on this podcast that some of the words we, that, that I might have used might be helpful for the listener that maybe they haven't heard it that way um, or thought of it that way. And they might be, oh, okay. And it is, it is what I love about it. It's, a, it's like, it is about normalizing. It's about, and it's also about connecting in a way that's effective with the individual. So I, I think this book is, it's beautiful. It's beautifully done. Um, and it talks about specific feelings and it helps. It's a good book. If someone's just not really keyed into their feelings, it might be very helpful for them to have a book that just kind of outlines it. Oh my goodness, Diane, thank you so much for joining us today and, and, and talking about all this good stuff. I, I'm sure that uh, our listeners are going to find it uh, extremely, extremely helpful. And for our listeners out there, uh, please be sure to rate us on Spotify, iTunes, wherever it is you are finding us. We're so glad that you're here. And as always, thank you for joining us in the conversation. 